Well, we've just closed out a series on the seven stories that shape our lives. And it's been one, I hope um, for you, it's been really beautiful for me just to reflect on, on how these stories of Scripture are so evident, these themes that come through, creation, calling, vocation, and then things like restoration. And we, we got into some deeper theology that I hope got both kind of into the place of depth of Scripture, but also in a super practical place of how does this actually influence and affect my life. But what we're doing now is kind of pivoting into a place of, um, towards the end of the year, at how do we, understanding our story as Christians, and maybe the stories that Scripture speaks into, how does that narrative, how does that story speak into the story going on in culture right now? And how do we as Christians position, posture, and go on offense in a, in a way that we are saying that we aren't intimidated by culture, we are aware of how culture is influential, and we continually take stock on how culture is influencing us and how we are to influence back into the culture. Um, when culture over-influences you, you get in survival mode. And one of the beautiful things about the cycle of the church over history, is that the church discovers and rediscovers who it is through the person of Jesus. And when that happens, we end up influencing culture in profound, deep, exciting, exciting ways. Oftentimes, the church has, has gotten weird, and we, and we make these little communes of people. And that's when we drink Kool-Aid, and that's when we build like weird towns with shrines. And that's when people start thinking that they're like prophets reincarnated. And, and, and everyone gives their money to, and makes a couple people rich and all these weird things. That's not really Christian history. That's just like cultish religious history. And our, our people and our flavors have certainly gotten its fair share of weird. But what's not weird are believers walking in the way of Jesus, who heard the call and follow him, and they become naturally countercultural. And I think it's the Advent season, which kind of starts in the final month leading up to Christmas, is a time where I would like us to kind of reevaluate how culture is maybe influencing us in ways that we don't really realize, how Christian culture has influenced us in ways we don't realize. And how when we just position ourselves and posture ourselves in some practical ways, we become countercultural in an all-consuming, fragrant, addictive, in a good way, type of way. Does that sound okay? Would you enter into this little journey with me? Yes. Thank you for those few verbal affirmations. <laughs> Amen. So, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 9. And before we do that... I'm going to just kind of read some stats and some inspirations that I've gleaned from some cultural pastoral experts that I appreciate and hopefully pique your interest a little bit. So we are, we are in a very interesting moment and, and a moment in where I believe Christianity can turn a cultural crisis into an opportunity, a cultural crisis into an opportunity. Um, America is walking in a constant contradiction. I think America itself is a contradiction right now. If you just think about the culture we live in, um, we've, we've, just, we've had things like the emergence of gay rights like never before, while the emergence of the 
alt-right has risen like never before. The first African-American president, I'm pulling some of these things from a pastor named John Tyson, who I really love in New York City. The first African-American president in our history was followed by the first Donald Trump. <laughs> the attack of religious liberty on things like bakers and organizations and religious leaders has also been held in tension with pro-religious liberty Supreme Court justices being elected. We've got a decline of church and the rise of megachurch and celebrity pastors. We've had, 25 year old, uh, we've had a 25-year-old pastor step down of late because of an affair with an underage girl. Meanwhile, we've got movies like Call Me By My Name with characters that celebrate a gay relationship with an underage boy with a mid-twenties grown man. The Me Too movement and the Fifty Shades of Grey dynamic is, is fervent while, while the Me Too movement is basically celebrating the abuse and the oppression on women. Fifty Shades of Grey is essentially celebrating domination of women, and it's the fastest-selling book among women of all time. The rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech have never been more active and alive. Normalization of technology and the desire to get rid of it seems to be equally filling our headlines. How do we get Jesus from Galilee to Hollywood? Or as we like to say in Pasadena, Bethlehem, because we're, we're the town just outside. <laughs> so with post-Christianity, we have the loss of the primacy of the Christian worldview in public affairs. I'm going to move this for a second because I feel a divide between some of you, but I'm going to stand up in a second. Post-Christianity, what do we have here in the post-Christian culture? The loss of the primacy of the Christian worldview being the thing that runs or is essentially influences highly public affairs. Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity, meaning that rather post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while some simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. A beautifully architectured landscape of individuals, Mark Sayer says, are committed to this self-development, utilizing the work of uh, a sociologist, he quotes, of Philip Reef, who suggested that pre-Christian taboo culture is first culture, Judeo-Christian creedal culture is second culture, and post-Christian Western culture is this third culture. That may mean nothing to a lot of you, but the point is this. Despite the West's obsession with sexual freedom and instant gratification, this third culture, this Christian post-culture world we live in, post-Christian culture, has not deteriorated into an orgiastic free-for-all that leads to society-wide collapse. Meaning this, we thought with the fall of cultural Christianity in a post-Christian culture in decades past, the prophetic community was saying, Everything is going to fall apart, and we're just going to all live in a big orgy. That's probably what's going to happen. And we don't. I mean, there is still darkness everywhere. But we don't live in a world that all the doomsdayer prophets said we were going to live in. Do we? We don't. So where, where's a good society-wide collapse when you need one, right? I mean, many Christians are kind of disappointed that we're not living in that reality. Any of you have still like the, 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 the 2000, um, like 
Y2K, thank you. I forgot what it was called. The, the Y2K, like, um, survival kits in your basements or your parents' basements still there? Amen. I see that hand. Yeah. I, it would still be in my parents' house, too, but they had to move out of that house. And we had the conversation. These are probably still good, right, hon? No, Mom. They're not. They never were. I'm not making fun of my mom. That was someone else sold my parents on that just in case. My parents were a little skeptical of all that. Just because they are here on the regular, I have to give that point. So what does this beautiful apocalypse actually look like? Well, here's, here's another thought I love from Mark Sayers. Instead of throwing themselves into a crazed life of sexual abandon with a string of partners, which is what we thought was going to happen here in this modern apocalypse, here's what has happened, which is a little sobering. Dad sneaks a look at porn on his phone in the den. While upstairs, his wife loses herself in Fifty Shades of Grey on her Kindle before both make it in early night to get the kids to sports or whatever it is in the morning. That's more of what it looks like, huh? That's the culture we live in. And what if our attempts at relevance, at mimicking and outdoing this beautiful world, actually limit our ministry potential? What if the fact that you can no longer be warmly embraced in this contemporary culture as a Christian is actually the best thing that has happened to us as Christians? Maybe cultural Christianity needs to die. Amen. Okay. So uh, I'm going to skip a couple of things because I'm already going too slow. Because <laughs> we're going to end with this really nice story time I want to read you. So we've gone, we've gone from what I believe crisis to opportunity. And more and more of the church isn't just prophesying crisis. Because we do live in a culture where I think we live in tensions, where we're constantly bombarded with tensions. But I think more and more what we want to hear is where's the hope of the opportunity of where we stand in this cultural moment? Isn't that what we really want to hear? Isn't that the message the church is supposed to have? Is, is not just this, oh, everything is so hard and horrible and let's all just move out of this like evil, expensive state and let's buy homes in the good old Midwest when freeze or burn ourselves up in the heat or the whatever else. I don't know what it is. But I, I think also for us culturally here, we have the privilege of having to take hold of the fact that we live in a place that you have to at least know or have to be here because there's some easier places, cheaper places, less intense places to live. And I think that's the most powerful thing we have as a body. We have opportunity even beyond what I think the church globally has as opportunity. And I think we need to take hold of it. So secularism as we thought it might turn us into, has not turned out that way. Following Jesus' mindset is crisis to opportunity. Decline is not in the church, it's in cultural Christianity. When you see churches closing their doors or no one's in all the downtown churches, why? They're, people are still going to church. The church is not on the decline. Cultural Christianity is on the decline. We are a part of the largest, fastest growing movement on earth, and it's beautiful. And we exist for the purpose of our non-members. It's an unbelievable privilege. And we have nothing but life-giving hope, opportunity, and an invitation that the world is desperate for. We had a great time at Alpha. I keep t mentioning Alpha. Uh, if you don't know what Alpha is, again, I say something every week. Because every week I've got a story. Because every week I go and meet these amazing people that, that are all over the place on their journeys, and it just makes some, some 
some, some ear candy. So here, here's what, and I always want to be honoring of their stories because, I mean, you might interact with them here and there or whatever, but we're having this, this incredible time. Um, a couple of the guys that I think they would categorize themselves as agnostics, a couple of guys in our group, they've been um, interacting, and they're usually on the same page most weeks. Why? Because they're always fumbling around topics that like, kind of end at the fact that if you don't believe God exists, the discussion can't really go past that, right? And so one of them stayed for the retreat where we got to kind of minister, and the first opportunity to maybe pray for someone was at this Alpha retreat. And first we had this amazing art experience encounter and as a community, as a little group. And then one of the guys that was, was so resistant to all sorts of stuff, he felt this tangible, we asked him, what, what did you feel at the retreat? He goes, he's an Italian guy with this amazing accent. Ultimately, he's trying to wrap his mind around, like, I still don't really believe, like, what you're doing is channeling God himself. But what I do believe is that you people are, are depositing a measure of, of the human love that this is the way you do it. <laughs> if you want to pray for me, and that's how you do the love, you can pray for me as much as you want. Right? He, he was just lying on Suzanne's living room floor for like an hour, like, like in some kind of like baked out wonderful state of bliss. Like while like people just come by gently like, can I pray for you and lay a hand on your shoulders? Like, yeah, 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 go, 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 yes, please. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then the other guy, you know, his, his kind of agnostic buddy is, is more, more or less just still, I basically grew up with this guy. We're from the South, and like cultural Christianity was absolutely king. You guys think you've seen cultural Christianity? How many of you grew up in the South? One. You're the only one who knows cultural Christianity like I know cultural Christianity. Because I promise you it is different in the South, in the Bible Belt, than any other part. You think you've experienced something of that? This guy... This poor guy, who I love, partially because we both play golf, he loves the Carolina Tar Heels, and beyond that, you don't have to do anything else in life. If you love those two things, I will love you. <laughs> so we've bonded over that, and, and then the fact that we kind of grew up where he starts talking, and his cultural Christianity is so thick that, that the atheists don't understand what he's trying to say. I'm dead serious. They get in a fight, kind of like a fun fight, but it was serious, where the, where the Italian guy is sitting there calling him a rude, disrespectful coward because he won't let people pray for him. It was the most amazing cultural conversation I've ever seen in my life. And all I want to tell you is, is that it is countercultural to love people in the way that Christians love people. And it will, at times, include praying for them, prophesying over them, which it doesn't have to get weird. It can just be speaking life, and, and then you tell them what that is and that it's biblical. And you just naturally start doing Jesus things. They will take notice. They won't have to believe first, but they will want more of it because they will sense in their spirits, I'm receiving love from this weird Jesus follower. This is how we start counterculturalism. By just being Jesus again. And I want us to be stirred up to how easy this is. And how the culture has made this hard. How cultural Christianity has made this super hard. Cultural Christianity lies to us saying that we have to do cool things. Instead of being authentic. Cultural Christianity starts to build these kind of ways that Christians do things. And, and say things. And it's like, no. Don't, don't say anything just because your grandmother said it. 
Like, he was so scarred by the, like, bless your heart sayings of these sweet old ladies, probably, I'm guessing. They just, he shares something, like, I can't get a job, and then they just bless some Christianese over him. And he's like, don't say that to me. He equated a prayer with someone just wrote saying some nice saying over you to make you feel better or to tell you to, to look harder or whatever else. And just band-aiding everything. Instead of like, look me, know me, feel me, feel my pain and love me in it. And he never felt that from the church. He never felt that from cultural Christianity. And I would like to, to say that it's because he never actually encountered the church. He never encountered Jesus in the church. That's the tragedy. And that will not be our story. We will tell a better story. We will make a better story. And so, where am I? Okay, 1 Kings 9, right? Okay, let me read that. Cultural Christianity is dead, and it's dying where it's, where it's not dead. It should be dead. And we are going to make sure people know we do not live in it, and we don't care if they crucify it, because they cannot crucify Jesus. He's already risen. Amen. I'm just saying things until I can open up my other piece that I'm trying to read from. Okay, First Kings chapter 9. Um, this is a story about Solomon, who was King David's son. I'm going to set it up real quick. David, man after God's own heart, had some issues, right? Slept with people, murdered people, and all that stuff. But what did David not do? Wrong. What was the one thing David never screwed up? From boyhood, manhood, to death. What? What? Yes. You guys are getting the themes of the stories. Worship. That man got worship. And he never screwed up worship. He screwed up pretty much everything else. He screwed up his family. He murdered people, slept with people, all kinds of disgusting things. But what David never screwed up from boyhood to manhood to death was worship. What was the story of Israel? It was about Moses Get my people so that they can worship me. It wasn't just freedom, it was freedom to worship. Freedom and worship are meant to go hand in hand. God's hand of judgment, God's hand of law, what he wants of people is first and foremost worship. He has a whole lot of wonderful grace to give on everything under the sun. All he really wants is worship. Not because he's selfish, but because he knows everything else is a false sense of idolatry that will ruin you and make you miserable. And that's what we get in the life of Solomon. The son of this man who got worship sets up a king and a kingdom to get one thing. And Solomon doesn't get that one thing. David has this idea, like because of worship, what's his vision? I want to build God a place to worship. I want to build a real temple. And God says, I can't let you do that, David. Why? You have blood on your hands. You've killed too many people. But I'll let your son. And his son builds this temple, but there's some issues. That's 1 Kings 9. Starting in verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the temple, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build. Stop right there. So what is the super strong language underlying that first sentence? As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, who's the king? Solomon. Whose house was bigger? Solomon's. And all that 
Solomon desired to build. Okay, verse 2. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. The first time is when he gives him the genie in the bottle thing, anything you desire, and he says, I want. What was the exact term? Anyone know? Discernment. We say wisdom to the kids, and that's fine, but it's actually more about discernment from good and evil. And the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, and this time he says, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as promised. David your father, um, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep commands, my commandments and my statutes, and all all I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, all of this he's saying over the concept of worship. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given you and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast cast you out of my sight. And the house will become a heap of ruins. Does the temple get destroyed into a heap of ruins? Yes, a couple more times. What's standing on the heap of ruins now? Yeah, uh, the second or third holiest site in all of Islam, a massive mosque. Heap of ruins. And finally, in that verse um, 9, it says, Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, because God is reminding him of the story he's writing out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. All they have to do is worship him and not false gods. It seems so simple. It seems so simple. They've got all of their history behind them. He wouldn't have a thing without it. He got the encounter with God's voice to tell him what I'm going to give you if you just worship me. And he can't do it. He screws so many things up. He builds this incredible temple. And then, you know what the problem is with all his wives? Because his dad had a problem with women too. You know, the, God's not actually, this is going to offend some people, God's not actually offended at his thousand wives. He doesn't like it. It's not good. But you know what the problem with the wives was? who they worshipped. They were all foreign women who had foreign false gods who brought that in and it tainted the worship of the one true God and it tainted the entire society. God's, God's finger was not at, look at all the women you slept with. Never. Now do we see throughout scripture that God has, has here's your best, try to actually love a single human being and see the fruit that comes out of that. For sure. But God does not critique there. He critiques at the heart of worship. And the issue in Solomon was that he let false worship into his kingdom. That was the entire issue. Oh, I need to summarize some things. Okay. What was the one issue of Solomon then? Compromise. Compromise. The issue with worship is... You heard my voice, you worshipped me, you set up a temple to worship me, you, you gathered and led the people to worship me. And what worship does 
is it connects you. Worship isn't this distant place where you just go through motions. David learned communion, the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, you are seeing a man whose heart was connected intimately with a father, where he understood the depth of which a father wanted to know him and be known together intimately. Worship was meant to make these people understand how close God wanted to be with them because in the garden, what was compromised was an intimate relationship and a trust relationship. Trust was broken. Worship restores trust, closeness. And when, and when that gets compromised in a real overt way with other gods, worship is compromised, closeness is compromised, trust is compromised. How does it happen in our, our culture? You guys might not be going around worshiping other gods. How do we compromise? How do you compromise? I think it's so much more subtle, but I think in a thousand years' time, if they look back at the Christians of today, it won't be so subtle. And that's what I kind of want to end on today. I'm not going to dig into it too much at the moment. So our, our, our takeaway from Solomon is that he makes this declaration, God, I want to serve you with everything. But I want to keep one foot here, one foot here. One foot in the temple, one foot with all these other wives and all these other gods. He wanted both. And you can't have both. And I think we have this, this difficulty where we want full-blown surrender. Everyone, at least all of you that I know that follow Jesus in the room, I see on your lives, I've, you've made these declarations to the Lord. That it's like, I all-out surrender, anything for you. I give you everything, right? And we, we come back to that. But then... Do we sometimes put conditions on our surrender? Anything at all costs, Father. And then as we kind of process, we go, well, I know you're a good God, and you have, you have a heart for that four-bedroom, three-bath, 2,500-square-foot house in Pasadena. And I know it might not come today, but I'm subconsciously putting a condition on me staying here. Or <laughs> I've gone there. Or, or, you know, I came here with a dream in this field, and, and, but I'm all surrendered for you. And I'll, I'll stay as long as it takes, as long as it doesn't take more than five years. Or, some of them get too, too hard because I know that the pain, it's like this isn't like your tainted hearts. You guys have the most beautiful hearts. But inside all of us, and I do the same thing, I have these subconscious things like, Oh, I, you know, I, I, I promised him surrendered church planting. But I'm, I'm dealing with all these things of underlying, like, what I think it would look like and how it would go and, and all these other elements. I have subconscious conditions. And when they don't go that way, I kind of hold them against them. Like, oh, something must have gone on. Maybe your plan changed. Not me. I didn't change. Or I, I didn't change my, my perspective or my posture. And, and I, want, I want to gently do this because I don't feel like we need this, like, now you guys haven't been sleeping with a thousand concubines uh, with other gods. The issue is compromise. And the fullness to walk into your authority and your promises is to recalibrate, re-surrender. When we get to the end of a year, what we should be doing is, is there anything in my life that I have conditions on that God doesn't want me to have conditions on? for me to step into things in fullness. Where have I put conditions where there shouldn't be? Because here's the thing, is that the temple, 
being in ruins doesn't bother the Father, and it doesn't bother Jesus, and it doesn't bother the kingdom, because the temple is you and I. The temple of God's presence that manifests on earth as it is in heaven are surrendered vessels that burn with light. That is the temple. That is the place of God's presence. And when a covenanted community burns with that place, we burn an amazing fragrance that is so attractive and so good and people want in. But our key question is what's influencing us? What's influencing us towards compromise and what's forming us in ways that we may not realize? Um, another little example I read this week from a pastor was how they did a, a little experiment. I think it was over in Europe. There was an art show. And um, at the, the art show, they were going to have like these big kind of Eastern European bodyguards at the door asking people to come in and would you sign your soul away basically to just enter? How, like, how, much, how much of a waiver would they just like gloss through just to come in to this art show? And then they go, wait, wait, wait. That's not, that's not what culture would do. What culture would do is we'd put a bunch of happy, attractive millennial hipsters at the front door chatting it up all safe and gentle and ask them to introduce you to this little policy that you're going to basically sign your life away in a few moments and then walk into this art show. Not a single person resisted signing away, basically like giving away their soul. And here's, here's the thing, is, is that that's, that's scary. You know, there's, there's, a place, there's a place up in the Bay Area that probably has more information on each of us than we could ever imagine in our scariest dreams, what they know about us uh, and, and what we watch, what we filter, what we spend. I, I'm just, as a show of hands, how many of you do not use any technology, device, internet on how you purchase things, how you do social media, uh, or how you search for content, like Google search, Yahoo, Microsoft, whatever people use? How many of you do none of those things? Not one thing of those things. Like, you don't have Facebook, Instagram, Google, eBay, no, but like, anyone do not do any of that at all? One person? That guy right there, under the age of four. Yeah. <laughs> not true if you've got my iPad at home because they know what my children want to see because we have a separate thing on Netflix just for my kids that is safety for me but it also means that they know exactly what my kids watch and they know how to sell my kids every time something like that's open. It's amazing and at first I, I mean I, I still like wrestle with it right because I appreciate getting ads that I actually care about. It's a little distracting because I have a desire to purchase like an incredible amount of things on the internet that I never used to. Because, you know, 10 years ago, they'd be trying to sell me like women's perfume while I watched, you know, Bethel Worship on YouTube. Now they're trying to sell me like golf equipment or, or a vacation to whatever because I just searched that location or whatever it is. It's so targeted. They know everything about us. You know, everything about us. And it, it's a little bit jolting how, how willing we are to just, because everyone else is kind of doing it. I don't have the answers to this. And I'm also not trying to do the whole doom gloom thing. I'm just saying that we are actually quite trusting with all of our information in many ways because the rest of culture is. And culture is influencing us in steep, steep ways. 
we're being influenced constantly because they know more about us than they ever have, each of us individually. But we need several things, Mark Sayers says, that I really agree with. We still need some concept of worshiping distance. Meaning, when we come right now, you realize that what you're doing right now is you have a, a, some kind of layer of distance between the rest of the world and the body, right? This is what worshiping distance is. We're still in the world, we're in culture, but there's a worshipful distance, meaning that this is a safe haven, a place unlike the world, but is built for the purpose of the world. Worshiping distance, a community that covenants in safety. And we also need formational distance because the world is deforming us all the time. And we need to formulate and, f- and have formation strategies in the church that are unlike any other. We need to have plans of how we raise up our young men and women. We need to have plans at how we, we take someone that's broken as a grown man or woman and, and navigate them, build them, disciple them. How do we do family? How do we do marriages? How do we do singleness? How do we do life forming each other in the midst of a society that's constantly trying to form us? Because society will deform us if we do not form ourselves. So we need, form, we need worshiping distance, formational distance, but... We need physical closeness like never before. Because what has happened is it's just so easy at the office or on the, the train, if you live in a train world, which I used to, or, or when, you, when you're even at the playground with kids running around and you're, there, there's this free moment to flip open the phone instead of say hello to the person right next to you. We need physical closeness. I heard that, that uh, this was a couple years ago, that there's like this trend online. I've never gone on any of these sites. It might sound a little creepy for me to say this, but I, I just, I heard this in the news, people. I wasn't looking for it. But there's like places you can just connect with other human beings to meet up to cuddle. That was a really interesting response. About half of you were like, oh yeah, I read that article too. The other half were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, people are so deprived of human physical contact that they're meeting up to cuddle. That's a great, great news reel for the church where you should get a hug when you walk in our doors. Need a cuddle? Come to church. We'll do it with distance, men and women appropriate, but you'll get some love, physical contact. Yeah, so people are just longing to be Appropriately touched. It's true. Thank you, Lord. End of the day. Okay. So here's some, some practical things. You know, we, we're resisting. Like, we have this desire, the American dream, to do things bigger, and yet we have a tiny house movement. We, we're like the fattest ever, and can we come up with more diets every month? <laughs> Our British friends observe, like, I've, Americans don't make any sense. You're all in, either incredibly fit or about to die from, like, lack of fitness. It's like, there's like, what is it with you people? And I, I know. I'm like, we're just super intense on either end of the spectrum, I guess. But the, the, um, the reality is, is I think our strength is our tension. And let's use that tension to turn crisis into opportunity. How about we start our day? As we start to think about how we're going to start our year, as we start to think about how we're going to start our decade, you know 2020 is coming. 
What if we start doing practical things where we rediscover the goodness of what it means to be a Jesus follower when we wake up and we start seizing the moment of every single day going, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to, whatever it is, I, I, I'll, I'll be real open with this. I tried to buy a Kindle so I could keep it by my bed and put the phone on the other side of the house and then some demon destroyed my Kindle a week after and I haven't got a new one yet. I, I, there is spiritual resistance to these things. Kindles are almost indestructible. Like the original version, I got a new original version. They're almost indestructible. Mine broke in a week. I haven't broken a computer screen in like 10 years. My Kindle break. I think it's an attack because I was starting some habits that were really good, that were less distracting to end and start my day. And I want to encourage all of you, what are you going to do with your access to, to your phones? Do something at the beginning of the year that's going to strengthen what you're being influenced by. And then wake up going, who do I need to encourage today? Who do I need to call today? Who am I going to pray with today? What do I need to pray in to prepare for this work day today on the way to work or on the way to my passion, to the way to my influencing places? What do I, what do I need to do in my family today? Distant family, mom or dad or distant relative or immediate family in your home. What today is going to be the thing that I am asking the Holy Spirit to highlight to make a difference in this day? And Spirit of God, come in to every day, and I'm going to pause and put away distractions that aren't necessarily bad, but what's bad is the fact that it is helping me compromise on my mindset to look for opportunities to influence. And when you're not influencing, you're being influenced. There's endless potential to be formed, but also to form other people through our devices, through our minds, through our words. So go on offense. Number one, we have some choices to make. And then I'm going to read this story. We have some choices to make. Let's attack. Let's start this decade in attack mode. Not one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Don't be a contested temple. You are a temple. Number two, let's address this compromise. Address it. Analyze your own heart. Analyze your own life. And how can you partner with the Holy Spirit to literally architect some new structures in your life that are going to empower you and that are going to influence others and that are going to allow formation to come from heaven and not from earth? And number three, let's build our temples. Let's build our temples. You are a mini temple with your own liturgy practices and influences. That is a fact. You each walk around being living, breathing presences of God. That is the most exciting reality that human history has ever had. The reason why we do little, little I hate to call it exercises, of just people just hearing from God and trying to remind each other that we have the voice of God to speak life, to speak healing, is because we have to remind ourselves continually in these vessels that so often feel broken that we carry supernatural, God-loved breath and a mind that can think differently and counterculturally. So let's attack, let's address, and let's build. And to end, I want, I want to read a little story. Um, about the Moravians. Are we good with that? And then um, 
worship team can start to come up, and if someone starts playing while I'm reading the story, that just always makes me happy. Are you ready for story time? Okay. Um, so first, let me, let, me just, let me just set this up for a moment. Um, a, a concept of remnant. The remnant of Israel was always that little group that still got God's heart. And as long as God had a remnant of Israel, it had the promises of Israel. The church is meant to be like that remnant. Where when we live in a cultural Christianity, there's still a remnant of those who, who get the heart of God. When you live in a godless society, there's a remnant of those who carry the heart of God. And we're meant to be that. Um, I, I like this, this, uh, this phrase, creative minority, that was coined by this rabbi, rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. And here's, here's, the, here's what he says. This pastor said, I first heard the phrase creative minority in an article by UK chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs in describing the ways that the Jewish community has not only survived but also contributed to the flourishing of the world through redemptive participation. Say redemptive participation. That's for you and me today. That dual focus of faithfulness and fruitfulness is not an easy tension in which to live. He writes, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a a demanding and risk-laden choice. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. That's John Tyson. What we're ultimately looking for is to be salt again, to truly be salt in the flavor of the world. And what, what he says in this book, Creative Minority, um, really stirred me. How many of you have heard of the Clapham sect? That's Wilberforce. It was a network of friends and families in England with William Wilberforce as its center of gravity who were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, by their love for each other, and by marriage. The group's primary aims were the liberation of slaves, the abolition of slavery, and the reformation of the penal system. They worked fervently for several decades, both throughout British society and in Parliament, where Wilberforce was a member, and finally saw the fruits of their labors with the passage of the slave trade in 1807 and the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. Because of their shared commitment in one another and these goals, they were also credited with founding the British and Foreign Bible Society, Church Missionary Society, the Anti-Slavery Society, the Abolition Society, the Proclamation Society, the Sunday School Society, the Bettering Society, and the Small Debt Society. You're taking notes? Yeah. And cruelty against animals. Amazing. The Clapham sect are renowned for having played a substantial role in developing what became Victorian models through their writings, their influence in Parliament, and an example they set. In the words of historian Stephen Michael Tompkins, the ethos of Clapham became the spirit of the age. They modeled well for us what it means to be a creative minority. In the midst of overwhelming public opinion in favor and even economic reliance on the slave trade, they covenanted together to fight 
for abolition. They were not content with the moral state of their nation and so worked in every arena available to them to see the reformation of their culture. They choose to live near one another, share much of life in common, including rest and holidays, and support one another's visions and goals far beyond convenience. Having a covenantal community means we choose accountable unity over loose networks. Say accountable community. You're in covenant with an accountable community. There can be a a utility for loose networks as LinkedIn has demonstrated, but a creative minority must be built on the foundation of a close-knit community that is both vulnerable and committed to one another. In such a community, individuals are not leveraging the network for their own good, but rather have devoted themselves to the well-being of one another and the betterment of the community in which they live. The problem with a loose network, we have such a desire for loose networks because we have a culture of individualism, but a loose network is, a, is problematic because as soon as there's conflict in a loose network, people withdraw to their own private concerns. If there's no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that are being confronted about, you are only networking. You are not in close community. Yet an accountable community does not just confront, it maintains and remains despite disagreements. It is defined by a covenantal loyalty. A covenant is distinct from a contract in that each side agrees to uphold their side of the agreement, whether or not the other is faithful. Now for the Moravians. This guy named Count Zinzendorf, which sounds super creepy if you don't know who he is, but he's not that creepy. He and the Moravians, they demonstrate what this covenant living looks like and the copious fruit that it can produce. This guy named Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was from a noble family in the early 18th century of Lower Austria who was set, he was set to inherit title, land, and money, and he could have simply coasted through life as one of the elite. However, he had this life-altering experience with Jesus himself that he dreamed of becoming a pastor. Taking on such a role was too much of a class demotion for someone of his stature. So his family soundly discouraged him from the pursuit, despite having a passion for preaching in the gospel. He relented to his family's request and took a position as counselor to the king of Saxony in Dresden. Part of the fallout at that time from Protestant Reformation was persecution by the Catholic Church of some of these sects of Christianity, including the Mennonites and the Anabaptists. After inheriting some of his grandfather's land, Count Zinzendorf offered asylum to a number of persecuted German-speaking Christians from Moravia and Bohemia beginning in 1722. What they did is they built a village in this place called Hernhut on the corner of his estate, which became a refuge for three to 400 people seeking religious freedom. And at first, his experiment was a complete disaster. In many ways, the Catholic Church's fears were realized there at Hernhut. Each subgroup had different practices of faith and produced considerable tension. Zinzendorf eventually took a leave from his position in Dresden in order to devote himself to resolving the intense conflict in the village. He began to visit every single home in the village to pray with them, to plead with them for unity around the most essential tenets of Christian faith. In response, the men started gathering for intense scripture study and prayer. Through these disciplines, they recognized that their strife was not what God was calling them to as believers. And they drafted this thing called Brotherly Union and Compact, a voluntary code to which they'd all adhere. The members of the community signed the document, which still exists today, 
and is known in its latest form as the Moravian Covenant for Christian Living. Forged in this new sense of unity, he began to hold daily meetings for prayer and Bible study, and the entire community was invited to take communion on August 13, 1727. On that day, they experienced what, what is called the Moravian Pentecost. The Spirit of God came down, and far more than 10 hours went by as they repented, wept, and laughed as they celebrated the presence of God. God honored their covenantal commitment to one another with an outpouring of his spirit and igniting of revival. They recognized that the revival was, being, uh, was bringing to their community was not for them just to hoard, but rather for them to lead renewal for others. Just as the light in the Jewish temple was never extinguished, they arranged a system of hourly intercession so that someone was always praying in Hernhut. This was the beginning of the modern prayer movement. You are seated in a house of prayer whose dreams were rooted in this community of three to 400 people across an ocean more than 200 years ago. They recognized again that this community was not for them to hoard, and that prayer meeting lasted without interruption for more than 100 years. Their fervency in prayer birthed a passion and vision for world missions, which has been unsurpassed even to this day. The Moravians did more than all the missionaries since the book of Acts up until that time. Three to four hundred people. After Count Zinzendorf heard a story about a slave converting to the Christian faith, they realized that some of the most neglected places were the slave islands in the British Empire, and they committed to missions in those places. In one particularly remarkable incident, two Moravians sold themselves into slavery and went to the Caribbean to witness to other slaves who had no other access to the gospel. They went to the island and soon thousands were converted, as was the case in many, many other places across the globe. Are you doing okay? I'm almost through. The Moravians were not ubiquitous with their own missional endeavors. They were also behind a number of other missional movements. Their contribution to renewal produced a fruit that was unprecedented for the size of their community. When Wilberforce was trying to make the case to Parliament that slaves could be freed and not revolt, he used as a case study one of the islands that the Moravians had visited where thousands were converted and lived in peace with whom they worked. John Wesley bumped into the Moravians in the middle of a storm, and they brought spiritual awakening. His famous reading of the epistle to the Romans was actually read by a Moravian pastor. The father of modern missions, William Carey, walked in the Baptist Mission Society with one of the Moravian pamphlets, threw it down in the manner that the Baptists pursue the heathens like the Moravians. Unbelievable spiritual fruit came from a tiny community in middle of nowhere, who covenanted together. They adopted this posture of being creative minority people and the fruit of their faithfulness and the way of Jesus influencing the world was for generations to come. Their story may seem kind of irreplaceable and certainly not something that we can just conjure up a weak imitation, but our actions do not have to be just heroic and dramatic. Remember that this revival began with one man going to his neighbor and praying that they would be united. He did that again and again until the flywheel of God's spirit began to turn. 
propelling the community outward into the service of the gospel. Let's stand. I want to read this final thing over you. Pray and then give a chance to respond as we close. We have often dismissed Jesus' command to love as a mere Christian cultural cliche. But 1 Corinthians 13, which this comes from, could not be more clear. If we do not get love right, nothing else matters. Yet instead of focusing on love, we keep seeking a more sophisticated influence strategy as a church. That has caused us to reach for the microphone and the result has been the world sticking its fingers in its ears. Our influence will actually be determined by the level of our self-sacrificing commitment to our neighbor and our willingness to see things through even when things get hard. Well, we covenant to see things through today. The impact of this Clapham sect and the Moravians was not a function of the influence or the credibility of their individual members, so much as the rarity, depth, and duration of their commitment to one another. Ministry and fruit without love is just noise. Father, we just position ourselves again afresh today, all in, surrendered. It doesn't have to be extravagant. It doesn't have to start with tens of thousands. May something beautiful, countercultural, and love-filled be birthed among us as a people. And as we start to press into this next decade, may we step forward with Holy Spirit as our guide to architect in the most profoundly simple, ancient ways of living in a world, not influenced by it, not formed by it, but stepping into formation, stepping into countercultural, love-filled places of influence with hope, with life, and with a message people actually want to hear. Let's take a moment as the team leads us.